Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. What? Oh my goodness. Radio Lab. Whoa. Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. There's a place in our world where the known things go. A corridor of the mind lined with shelves, cluttered with proof. I'm hiding in here. Who's out there? What do they... What do they want? They sound so angry. I'm pretty sure they can get in. I don't see how I can get out. I think I might be trapped. Welcome to The Last Archive, the show about how we know what we know and why it sometimes seems lately as if we don't know anything at all. I'm Jill Lepore. This season... I've been trying to trace the history of doubt over the course of the last century, building that history block by block, a tower of doubt. Not too long ago, it all came crashing down. It was the beginning of the year 2021. Every archive of knowledge seemed to be under attack, embattled. Universities, courthouses, press rooms, even Congress. But I found it. The Last Archives Escape Hatch. Come through with me. We'll have to go through a warren of underground tunnels, but we'll get there. We're heading to a place called Iron Mountain. Something I love about history, all the surprises, the twists and turns. So I'm starting with a story that has so many turns. In the 1930s, a German immigrant named Hermann Naust purchased an abandoned iron ore mine in New York State, near the Hudson River. Inside its caves and old mining tunnels, Naust grew mushrooms. The place was perfect for it. The mushrooms mushroomed. 
Naust began supplying the city with mushrooms, and he made a fortune. People called him the Mushroom King. At his house, he had the only mushroom-shaped swimming pool in the world. In 1951, Naust adapted his caves and mines and tunnels for a new business. He founded the Iron Mountain Atomic Storage Corporation. Because at the time, Americans were crazy for bomb shelters. Schoolchildren were ducking and covering to prepare for a nuclear attack. Herman Naust outdid them all. An atomic bomb expert called Naust's vault the safest place in the world. A 30-ton door equipped with a time lock will guard one of the main passages in which 400 vaults are located during the initial phase of the enterprise. Already foreign banks have applied for storage space behind the massive door. Museums also are expected to seek protection for their priceless art treasures. In the atmosphere of international tension, bank files and records begin to find their way into the sanctuary. You could put your most valuable documents there. Wills, photographs, legal papers. The company grew and grew. A Cold War knowledge vault. A last archive along the Hudson. These days, Iron Mountain is still in business. It's a global records management company, the world's biggest, with a $4 billion annual revenue and facilities in more than 50 countries. You might have seen their trucks with a blue triangular logo. I see those trucks all the time, rumbling up and down the road. Iron Mountain stores everything, including the records of nearly every Fortune 1000 company. They've also got Frank Sinatra's original recordings and Charles Dickens's last will and testament. Back in the scariest years of the Cold War, though, Iron Mountain Atomic Storage offered something more than storage. It offered secrecy. Iron Mountain, under a blanket of iron ore. Alternate, underground headquarters for corporations. That ad ran in 1962, the year of the Cuban Missile Crisis. If you owned a company and wanted to hold a top-secret meeting, why not hold it in hidden conference rooms deep underground, Dr. Evil-style? Or you might want to hold your meetings down there if you were, say, a super-secret government agency. In 1967, a few years after Iron Mountain advertised its secret lair meeting service, a little book appeared in bookstores. It was called Report from Iron Mountain on the Possibility and Desirability of Peace. The book described itself as the record of a 15-man special study group that had gathered at Iron Mountain in those top-secret underground meeting rooms. And here was the book's bombshell. It was never supposed to be published. But someone had leaked it. A member of the secret group, identified only as a professor of social science from a large Middle Western university. The report itself was totally wonky. Wonky, but shocking. The permanent possibility of war is the foundation for stable government. It supplies the basis for general acceptance of political authority. The special study group had been convened, it was said, in response to a peace scare. Members of the group talked about how devastating it would be if the United States were ever, for any length of time, at peace as if the only thing that kept the American people from shaking off the chains of their submission was war, endless war. It has ensured the subordination of the citizen to the state. No modern political ruling group has successfully controlled its constituency after failing to sustain the continuing credibility of an external threat of war. Report from Iron Mountain concluded that the U.S. needed to keep those wars coming, 
But if, given the growing anti-war movement, a dreaded peace did descend upon the land, there were still ways for the U.S. government to find substitutes for functions of war. This is so crazy, I'm going to explain it again. According to this report, the U.S. government was trying desperately to keep the nation at war. But if their worst fears were realized and peace came, they had other options, other ways to stifle discontent. A comprehensive social welfare program, a giant open-end space research program aimed at unreachable targets, an established and recognized extraterrestrial menace, massive global environmental pollution, fictitious alternate enemies. Holy moonshot, Batman. This leaked report was hot, hot, hot. It became a bestseller on the New York Times list. It was translated into 15 languages. Esquire published an excerpt. Of course, people tried to find that Midwestern social science professor who'd leaked it, and they wanted to know which government department had commissioned it. A reporter from the New York Times called around to the White House and to the State Department and then noted, no advanced reviewer has flatly labeled the book fiction. People who read it were incensed, but report from Iron Mountain proved very difficult to verify, even though some people thought the whole thing was just a hoax. If it's authentic, it's an enormous roaring scandal, one scholar told the New York Times. If it's caricature, it's a brilliant job. Eventually, most people forgot about it. But then, in 1971, another government report was leaked to the press. This weekend, portions of a highly classified Pentagon document came to light for all the world to see and brought cries of outrage from Washington. The New York Times began publishing parts of a voluminous report that the Pentagon had drawn up on the causes and conduct of American involvement in Vietnam. The Pentagon Papers revealed decades of lying by the federal government to the public about what had really been going on in the war in Vietnam. Senator George McGovern, a leading critic of the war, called the report, and we quote, a story of almost incredible deception. This is where this history gets twisty-turny. The publication of the Pentagon Papers brought the authors of the report from Iron Mountain out into the open, because unlike the Pentagon Papers, which were entirely real, the report from Iron Mountain was, in fact, entirely made up. So, just to be extra, extra clear here, there never was any special study group, had never met at Iron Mountain. And this recording? No modern political ruling group has successfully controlled its constituency after failing to sustain the continuing credibility. That's one of our actors reading a document that is, in fact, a fake. In 1972, in the New York Times book review, a writer named Leonard Lewin revealed that the report from Iron Mountain had been a hoax. Intended as a satire, it involved some pretty high-level people. Even the renowned economist John Kenneth Galbraith was in on it. But, Lewin confessed, I wrote the report. All of it. The charade is over. The idea had come from Victor Navasky, a leftist writer who later became editor of The Nation. It was all a lark, an angry one, as Navasky told NPR's Fresh Air in 1996. The idea for Report from Iron Mountain came to... Me, one day, when I saw a little headline in the newspaper saying that the stock market had fallen abruptly because of a peace scare, and we got an idea to do a book about uh, the quashing of a report which was commissioned by the White House to plan the transition from a uh, wartime to a peacetime economy, 
and we would do a kind of hoax book about um, what happened when the commission concluded that the economy would collapse if peace really broke out. The report from Iron Mountain hoax brought the storage company, Iron Mountain, the real place, a lot of grief. And it wasn't fair, because let me be clear, the storage company had nothing to do with this hoax. But meanwhile, the hoax report had acquired a huge following among conspiracy theorists. They read it as incriminating evidence. They put it on their bookshelves. And when the authors revealed themselves to be pranksters, it didn't change anything. A lot of conspiracy-minded fans of the book simply refused to believe this new turn of events. They just couldn't take that book out of the mental box that said government report written in secret underground bunker and put it in the box that said hoax. They were still talking about it decades later, like in this 1993 video cassette, Blueprint for Tyranny. Welcome to the report from Iron Mountain. This report is something you would never believe unless you read it. Peace, in reality, equals world socialism, as we will find out as we journey through this report. If anything, conspiracy theorists cherished the fake book more as the years passed. They read it avidly, passed it around, kept it close to their vests, used it even as a manual, a manifesto for opposition to the federal government. And then, in 1995, in Oklahoma City, some of those right-wing conspiracy theorists staged an insurrection. The explosion uh, went off around 9 a.m. and we could feel the explosion in the newsroom of uh, Channel 9. Wow. Holy cow. About a third of the building has been blown away. On April 19, 1995, a truck packed with nearly 5,000 pounds of explosives detonated outside the nine-story Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building, killing 168 people including 19 very little children, at a daycare center. The explosion injured hundreds more. We can also give you a bit of a hint now as to where the government appears to be focusing its investigation on some of the uh, what are called right-wing, white supremacist groups in various parts of the country. Eventually, two men were charged with 11 federal crimes. They were the sort of guys who believed that the report from Iron Mountain was real. The indictment charges that Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, former army buddies with a grudge against the government, planned the bombing, selected the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City as their target, bought and stole materials for the bomb, and built it. After the Oklahoma City bombing, Americans suddenly started paying attention to right-wing insurrectionists. Who were these people? Where did they get their ideas? Those ideas mainly came from books. I don't know if Timothy McVeigh read the report from Iron Mountain or watched those video cassettes about it, but he did have a book that's usually right next to it on every right-wing extremist's bookshelf. Inside McVeigh's yellow Mercury sedan, investigators discovered a sealed envelope containing evidence that would prove crucial to analyzing McVeigh's motivations. Highlighted passages from the anti-government novel The Turner Diaries. The Turner Diaries is a 1978 novel by an avowed American neo-Nazi. It includes a detailed account of somebody building an explosive device, putting it into a truck, and driving it up to a federal building. McVeigh seemed to have treated the Turner Diaries as an instruction manual. 
In a similar way, a lot of his fellow extremists considered report from Iron Mountain as some kind of decoder ring. One magazine reported, It has become required reading for militias, Nazi sympathizers, and other right-wing types who deny that it's a hoax and cite it as evidence of plans for a new world order. The instigator of the hoax, Victor Navasky, was horrified. As he explained on Fresh Air, he'd found out that Liberty Lobby, a white supremacist group, had reprinted the report. It was, to them, a kind of Bible. They were so persuaded that the report was the real thing that, w- that they didn't bother to get copyright permission to reprint it and had reprinted it as if it were a government document and were selling it. Navasky's original partner in crime, Leonard Lewin, sued Liberty Lobby and reached a settlement. In the end, they had to surrender to him their copies of Report from Iron Mountain. Lewin stashed them in his basement. But it was too late to stop this left-wing hoax turned right-wing conspiracy. Navasky wrote in The Nation about its acceptance by super-patriots and conspiracy theorists of the far right. He said that their taking it seriously was the scariest proposition of all. It has since gotten even scarier. Since the 1990s, the report from Iron Mountain has passed from generation to generation like some kind of scripture. On the 6th of January, 2021, the day insurrectionists attacked the U.S. Capitol, some creep on 4chan posted, in the cavalierly ugly language in this hideous corner of the internet. Read the report from Iron Mountain, you brainless retard. These days, you'll still find report from Iron Mountain on far-right, white supremacist reading lists, with no mention that it was a left-wing hoax. And now, it has a new reading list companion, the writings of Q, the anonymous alleged insider who drops clues about all the evil goings-on inside the government. Just recently, I called up Victor Navasky. He's nearly 90. It was really good of him to talk to me. We both sound like we're under Iron Mountain, though, because the phone line is pretty bad. It's a fantasy to believe that it's true. And I think QAnon is guilty of its own fantasies. Do you think if, if someone presented himself to the world tomorrow and said, I am Q and I can prove that I am Q... And I was just joking the whole time, and it got out of hand. None of this is true. Would there be any way of doing what had been done? I don't think so, myself. I think that's where we are as a culture, and unfortunately. The QAnon report goes something like this. An insider decides to spill the beans about a secret government-run conspiracy, something to do with Satan and pedophiles. He leaks some clues in a report, and then report after report. And the people who read those reports, those postings by this anonymous Q, become passionately attached to the idea of a conspiracy. And within the logic of that conspiracy, they're being denied access to knowledge, some secret body of knowledge hidden away that only the people in power have access to, and that the followers of Q have to hunt down and piece together, clue by clue, Q by Q. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. 
Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, N.A. member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. Q isn't true. Also, I don't buy either of the two big headlines about QAnon, that it's new or that it's uniquely powerful. That's what I've been trying to argue by going over the story of the report from Iron Mountain. This stuff isn't new. It's not all-powerful. And it has never, ever been a secret. This election will be the most rigged election in history. That is a lie. An old-fashioned lie. But it's also a complex lie. The sort of lie that brings together every kind of doubt whose rise I've been chronicling all season long. As little boats of doubt, rowboats, canoes... They become a fleet of flotilla in Armada. They're sending millions of ballots all over the country. There's fraud. They found them in creeks. They found some with the name Trump. Just happened to have the name Trump just the other day in a waste paper basket. This is going to be a fraud like you've never seen. It was awful to watch this unfold in the months leading up to the 2020 election. And in the months afterward, to watch it spread on the Internet and hear it from the mouth of the U.S. president. He said it again, and again, and again. If enough people in public and in positions of authority lie about something for long enough, people will believe it. Watching it all, I felt as if my brain was on rewind. Specifically, my head kept rewinding back to a brilliant book published in 1994 called A Social History of Truth by Stephen Chapin, Emeritus Professor of the History of Science at Harvard. Chapin was writing about gentlemen philosophers in the 17th century in England. But I find his book so wholly applies to the present that I asked him to read my favorite lines. Knowledge is a collective good. In securing our knowledge, we rely upon others, and we cannot dispense with that reliance. That means that the relations in which we have and hold our knowledge have a moral character 
And the word I use to indicate that moral relation is trust. He argues that you can't actually know anything alone. You can only know things with other people. He doesn't think the United States or the world is experiencing a crisis of truth. He thinks it would be better called a crisis of social knowledge. For example, and in particular, around climate change. I know something about the loss of biodiversity and species, about melting icebergs, about sea level rise. Okay. Now someone puts pressure on me and say, how do I know these things? I don't think any of us know these things directly. So the knowledge that I need to know these things is to know who to believe, who has credibility, who has authority, who to trust. To know anything, then, you have to know who to trust. If you doubt everything, it's because you trust no one. I find this framework really helpful. No one has killed truth. Instead, we have this crisis of trust. But how did people stop knowing who to trust? One answer to that question involves the unintended consequences of new technologies of communication. We've been hearing about those all season. How radio, for example, amplified all kinds of extremism. But broadcasts only reached so far. Then came the internet, starting with bulletin boards and chat rooms in the 1990s. But we still think of it the way we thought about radio in the 1930s. The phrase echo chamber comes up a lot an acoustic metaphor. So there's a million voices are screaming out there, but any, any body or any, any group of like-minded people are listening to some and not to others. Right. So there's another kind of question about what, what for us is audible and what for them is audible. Right. But then that metaphor of audibility and voice, voice also meaning vote, you know, has implications for democracy, which is to say we will hear all the voices and that we will we will automate a system wherein we hear everyone who's enfranchised. But then now we're in a crisis of democracy around people not feeling heard, right? I mean, if we just think about the siege of the Capitol, and if yeah, you yeah. listen to interviews with those people, we're here to have our voices heard. <laughs> a democratic project, everyone has a voice. I mean, well, uh, we've heard them now. Still, the argument that technology allows fakers and haters to find each other more easily, Stephen Shapin thinks that's just too glib. It's one of the reasons I love talking with him. He got me thinking harder about another argument to explain what has happened to Americans and trust over the past century. That argument is political. It involves what one set of political actors have done to institutions over time in order to shift the balance of power in their favor. Do you mean to say the Supreme Court decision is null and void? No, it, the Supreme Court decision is not necessarily the law of the land. The Constitution still is. That's Republican Senator Barry Goldwater making a conservative argument that the Supreme Court had overstepped in its decision to abolish segregation in Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. Conservatives at the time were very much out of power. Goldwater was an upstart. But his wing wanted to take over the GOP. And then they wanted to take over the country. And so, beginning in the 1950s, conservatives engaged in a sustained assault on trust in institutions that produce and diffuse knowledge. Three institutions especially. The courts, the press, and the university. These institutions, they said, were all dominated by liberals. First, the courts and the supposed liberal bias of the judiciary, 
Whatever you do, Goldwater said, don't trust the courts. We, they, they interpreted by that action that it was wrong to have segregation. Now, they didn't spell out what was to be done. Other conservatives went after institutions of higher learning. William F. Buckley led the assault against the academy, beginning with his 1951 book, God and Man at Yale. I would rather be governed by the first 2,000 people in the Boston Telephone Directory than by the 2,000 people on the faculty of Harvard University. Buckley said, whatever you do, don't trust the professors. The third front in this war on institutions of knowledge was an attack on the press. This began with the Nixon administration, and most famously, with a speech given by his vice president, Spiro Agnew, in 1969. Whatever you do, Agnew said, don't trust the press. These men can create national issues overnight. They can elevate men from obscurity to national prominence within a week. They can reward some politicians with national exposure and ignore others. The courts, the universities, the press. Conservatives believed that to defeat liberalism, they needed to conquer these institutions of knowledge, destroy trust in them. The left has contributed a whole lot to this epistemological unraveling, too. But conservatives have been playing a long game. This effort took years and years. And eventually, they succeeded beyond their wildest dreams. They took over the courts, or at least the federal judiciary. I'm honored and humbled to appear before you today as a nominee for Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. They built their own press. Your mask is making me uncomfortable. And they undermined the university, especially scientific inquiry. So here we are, decades later, on the other side of this slow-rolling revolution, a world where there is very little left of what used to be called common knowledge. This brings us to the 2020 presidential election. Those mail-in ballots could have been written the day before by the Democratic Party hacks that will roll over the convention center. Sure, lots of people in positions of power and authority said the election of Joe Biden was free and fair, the most secure election in American history. The court said that. Every reputable news outlet said that. Political scientists, election observers, scholars. They all said that. But could you trust them? For a lot of Americans, the answer remained no. Not anymore. And maybe never again. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients. Each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase Bank 
NA Member, FDIC, Copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. Huh. Hmm. What? Oh my goodness. Radio Lab. Whoa. Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. The 6th of January, 2021. It was the Christian holiday of Epiphany, marking the day the three kings visited Jesus in the manger. An Epiphany is a moment when all is revealed. In Washington, thousands of people gathered for a rally to save America, cheering President Trump and damning the press. Meanwhile, down the street, inside the Capitol, a joint session of Congress was meeting to certify the results of the presidential election an election that would send Trump packing in two weeks' time. And after this, we're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you, and we're going to walk down to the Capitol. And we're going to cheer on... They ain't never seen us out here. We out here, we putting on for Trump. You know what I'm saying? Four more years are up. America first! America first! America first! Congress has already spoken. They marched to the Capitol waving Trump flags and Confederate battle flags, wearing MAGA hats and superhero costumes and camouflage and bulletproof vests. You probably saw all this. The crowd started pulling down the barricades, flimsy fences, climbed the stairs, scaled the scaffolding. They beat up Capitol Police, smashed windows, crashed through doors. They broke into the Capitol. For people who study right-wing extremism and have read the neo-Nazi novel, The Turner Diaries, everything that happened that day was eerily familiar. Because that book describes an attack on the Capitol this way. The real value of all our attacks today lies in the psychological impact, not in the immediate casualties. More important, though, is what we taught the politicians and the bureaucrats. They learned this afternoon that not one of them is beyond our reach. The decades-long conservative attack on institutions of knowledge, the press, the courts, universities, it had come down to this day when these people did not believe in the outcome of an election or believed it and wanted to overturn it. For weeks, Trump supporters had been trying and failing to challenge the results in counties where lots of black people voted. They were especially mad about Georgia, where in runoff elections, a Jewish man and a black man had just won seats in the U.S. Senate. Where are the fucking traitors? Drag them out by the fucking hair! Yeah! Where are the fucking traitors? Come on, who's first? 
It was a riot, a white race riot. And yet, horrible as it was, the insurrection on the 6th of January, epiphany, looked like it might be another kind of epiphany, a day when people could finally see clearly, a revelation at last, that all the lying wasn't harmless. There seemed at first to be real consequences. The president was banned from Twitter. Later, the House impeached him for a second time. President Trump gravely endangered the security of the United States and its institutions of government. He threatened the integrity of the democratic system, interfered with the peaceful transition of power, and imperiled a co-equal branch of government. He thereby betrayed his trust as president to the manifest injury of the people of the United States. The charges went to the Senate for a trial. Last year, the first season of The Last Archive, I started out with a trial. Remember Lucina Broadwell strangled in Barrie, Vermont? I started this show there because I wanted to explain a bit of crucial history. Most of our ideas about how to decide what's true and what's not true come from the 13th century, with the rise of trial by jury. Two sides take turns presenting evidence, and a jury decides the verdict, the truth. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. Impeachment, too, is a relic from the Middle Ages. All persons are commanded to keep silence on pain of imprisonment while the Senate of the United States is sitting for the trial of the article of impeachment exhibited by the House of Representatives against Donald John Trump, former president of the United States. England's parliament invented impeachment in the 14th century. In 1787, the framers of the American Constitution meeting in Philadelphia decided to add an impeachment clause. Because impeachment and conviction was the only way to stop a president from declaring himself ruler for life, like a king. Jamie Raskin, congressman from Maryland, led the prosecution for the House in a trial where members of the Senate sat, acting like a jury. You will not be hearing extended lectures from me because our case is based on cold, hard facts. Trump's lawyers argued that Trump hadn't incited an insurrection at all. And if we buy this radical argument that President Trump's lawyers advance, we risk allowing January 6th to become our future. And what will that mean for America? I'll show you. Raskin played that video. Trump's lawyers played some of their own video. But nearly everyone in the Senate had already decided how they'd vote, and there was little suspense. The yeas are 57, the nays are 43, uh, two-thirds of the senators present not having voted guilty. The Senate judges that the respondent, Donald John Trump, former president of the United States, is not guilty as charged in the article of impeachment. The vote fell short of the supermajority required to convict. Even though there is no more clear-cut case for impeachment, no more indisputable evidence than an armed insurrection incited by the executive branch to stop the legislative branch from certifying an election. In the aftermath of the insurrection and the impeachment, a buzz phrase emerged, the big lie. Republicans kept insisting that the election had been stolen. Democrats took to calling this the big lie. But Republicans said the big lie was the idea that Joe Biden was the lawful president. A lot of progressives talked about another kind of big lie, 
the lie that white people matter more than black people. That move harkened back to something James Baldwin had said in the 1960s. The curtain of my color is what you use to avoid facing the facts of our common history, the facts of American life. In 2020, Princeton historian Eddie Glau Jr. updated Baldwin's argument. America is is so willfully ignorant, right? And it's willfully ignorant because it wants to protect its innocence, as Baldwin says. It doesn't want to admit that uh, 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 it is not the shining city on the hill. The trouble is deeper than we wish to think because the trouble is in us. The trouble is in us and the lies we tell. You just can't pull these two lies apart. The lie about the election is the lie about white supremacy. People who say the election was stolen are generally arguing that black voters stole the election. So really, there's just the one lie. But then I guess, predictably, the very expression, the big lie, became meaningless. The way that earlier, fake news became meaningless. Just another way to disagree with someone. When Georgia passed a law that challenged requirements for voting, and liberals called it a voter suppression law, Conservatives said that was a big lie. Here's how crazy this is. Some people said that some other people lied, that they committed voter fraud. Then some other people said this was a lie. There was no fraud. And then the first group of people said those people were lying about the lying. And they all said all these lies with a big lie. Here in this emergency bunker in Iron Mountain, I feel buried beneath the weight of it all. I think a lot of people feel that way. End of January, I watched the newly and actually elected Joe Biden deliver his inaugural address. He'd started drafting his remarks in late 2020, but reportedly it's quite common for Biden to revise his speeches up until the last moment. After the insurrection, he'd have had some more revising to do. There is truth and there are lies. Lies told for power and for profit. And each of us has a duty and a responsibility as citizens, as Americans, and especially as leaders, leaders who have pledged to honor our Constitution and protect our nation, to defend the truth and defeat the lies. Defeat the lies. I liked that very much when I heard it. So did Stephen Shapin, the historian of science. And then it really worried both of us. Yes, it was beautiful. I I, I entirely agree because I know what he meant. But it's as much as pounding the table or shouting as a way of addressing the nature of the problem. There is truth and there is lies. Yeah, who could disagree with that? Pounding on the table is not enough. Saying, I tell the truth, you tell lies, is not enough. And it doesn't work. This season of The Last Archive has been a long hundred years. From the Scopes trial to Ripley's Believe It or Not, from the War of the Worlds to Axis Sally and Tokyo Rose, Maury Bernstein, the mid-century Svengali, the moon hoax, Soviet propaganda, and rest in peace Rush Limbaugh. A problem of historical thinking is that when you look back, everything seems to lead to now. But of course, now keeps changing. But the past remains the same. I've been looking for a history of mischief, the peddling of doubt, people who profited politically, financially, from making other people confused. What I've argued is that there really is a genealogy here, 
These people learn from one another's tricks. So it's been worth laying them all out. Here's how this trick works. Don't be fooled again. Report from Iron Mountain. It's one of the sorriest of these tricks. The permanent possibility of war is the foundation for stable government. It supplies the basis for general acceptance of political authority. It was created as a prank, a joke. But look what a mess it helped make. I don't want to leave it just hanging in the air there. A hoax. So I have one more story to tell. Remember Herman Noust, the Mushroom King, with his mushroom-shaped swimming pool? When I was thinking about Iron Mountain and came across his name, it sounded so familiar to me. Herman Noust. Herman Noust. After a while, I remembered. I'd once met his granddaughter. Here's how that happened. A bunch of years ago, I got obsessed with a guy named Joe Gould, who, starting more than a century ago, claimed to be writing the longest book in the history of the world. He would do this by making his own last archive, writing down every word that anyone ever said to him. His book was supposed to be called The Oral History of Our Time. Apart from literary merit, it will have future value as a storehouse of information, he would say. Later, people said this book never existed, that Gould had just talked about it, had never written a word of it. Gould, it turned out, was insane. He was, in fact, a psychopath. But long after Gould's death, when I heard about the oral history of our time, I went looking for the manuscript. I went digging, tunneling through archives. And weirdly, believe it or not, I found it, or at least I found a part of it, in a notebook deep in the archives of the New York Public Library. Gould had destroyed most of the manuscript, but it had mainly been about one person, a Black artist named Augusta Savage. And she's the real story, the true report from Iron Mountain. Augusta Savage had been a leader of the Harlem Renaissance in the 1920s and 1930s. She'd started her own studio. She'd been commissioned to create a work about Black Americans for the 1939 World's Fair. She'd been featured in Life magazine. But then she met Joe Gould. He began to stalk her everywhere she went. There's some evidence that he raped her. In the 1940s, she disappeared. She went into hiding. I found that she'd moved to upstate New York, where she'd lived at first in a tiny rundown house without plumbing or electricity. She turned a chicken coop into a studio. Then she got a job at Iron Mountain Storage Company. Augusta Savage is dead now, and her house is being turned into a museum, run by Herman Noust's granddaughter. Augusta Savage worked at Iron Mountain, but also every week, Herman Noust's son brought her clay. He bought her a car. He had a kitchen installed in her house, had electricity run out there. She'd come to the family's estate, the one with the mushroom-shaped swimming pool, to recite poetry. But meanwhile, she destroyed much of her own art. She went in the city mainly just to collect her old work and destroy it. She apparently sent a man to retrieve a bust that she'd made of W.B. Du Bois, and then, reportedly, smashed it. The story of Augusta Savage? That's my report from Iron Mountain. I wrote a book about all that. It's called Joe Gould's Teeth. A lot of the last archive is like Joe Gould's Teeth. A lot of history is like Joe Gould's Teeth. Tragic and maddening. Stories about loss and destruction. Not leading to some glorious or terrible present. Just sad. 
When I went out to that chicken coop that had become Augusta Savage's studio, the ground was still covered with smashed bits of her sculpture. Her voice, like her art, is lost. But I am tired of hidden and smashed history. I'm tired of bunkers, tunnels, and vaults. Underground layers and ridiculous conspiracy. It's time to dig out. Time to climb up. Time to get out. Time to figure it out. You can study history for its own sake, curl around in attics to seek the truth, rifle through the pages of old books, bury yourself in every last archive. But you can also study history to learn how to solve problems, pry open the door of the vault, and creep out, bring the knowledge of the place where the known things go, and carry it outside. Escape the corridor of the mind for the messy, angry, half-wrecked, beautiful world. The Lost Archive is written and hosted by me, Jill Lepore. It's produced by Sophie Crane McKibben and Ben Nadef-Haffrey. Our editor is Julia Barton, and our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Martine Gonzalez is our engineer. Fact-checking by Amy Gaines. Original music by Matthias Bossi and John Evans of Stellwagen Symphonette. Our research assistants are Kamani Panthier and Lily Richmond. Our foolproof players are Yoshi Amao, Raymond Blankenhorn, Matthias Bossi, Dan Epstein, Ethan Hirschenfeld, Becca A. Lewis, Andrew Perella, Robert Ricotta, and Nick Saxton. The Lost Archive is a production of Pushkin Industries. At Pushkin, thanks to Jacob Weisberg, Heather Fain, John Schnars, Carly Migliori, Christina Sullivan, Eric Sandler, Emily Rostek, Maggie Taylor, Maya Koenig, and Daniela Lacan. Special thanks to Carla Naustalaya and Simon Leake. And thanks to Shola Lynch at the Schomburg Center. If you like the show, please remember to rate, share, and review. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jill Lepore. Hey, it's Ben. Did you know you can listen to The Last Archive on Amazon Music? And you can stream your favorite albums and artists in the app, so you can do all of your listening in one place. Plus, Amazon Prime members get access to ad-free podcasts from other podcast networks, like Wondery and Amazon-exclusive shows. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app, or just ask your Alexa device to play The Last Archive on Amazon Music.